following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you don't know, I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at Love City Church, and I do a lot of the Bible teaching, and that's what I stepped up here to do now. So if you would... Uh, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. We're in chapter two. Uh, we're going to keep going through this eight-week journey um, through Ruth. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screens. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, let us know. We always have lots. We'd like to give you one for free, okay? Uh, as you're turning there, I do I want to take a moment in, in, a, in a bit of a more serious tone to um, honor dads. And so if you're here today and, and you're you're a bio dad, or you're a stepdad, you're an adopted dad, or you're a spiritual dad who understands that uh, your role is, is to do the best job you can, loving and serving those entrusted to your care, and, and to do that as a reflection of God's good character to them, I just want to honor you and, and thank you for fulfilling that role. Uh, if if you are in that role of a dad or a father, and you don't understand that primary purpose that I just laid out. I'm, I'm praying, and I hope that you'll seek to understand it and, and walk it out to the glory of God. Maybe you haven't heard that before. Maybe you hadn't really thought about what the primary purpose of being a father is, but that's it. It's uh, to love and to serve in, in the likeness of Christ. Amen. Uh, and, and for those of you, I know, you know, Father's Day can be complicated, and, and for those of you who, like me, who who grew up without a dad or grew up without a dad that loved Jesus and then proceeded accordingly, I'm hoping we can rejoice today in our adoption as sons and daughters of the only true and and perfect father. And I hope even those of you who grew up with dads that, that were great, that you'll be thankful to God today for the model of love and gentleness, patience, and even discipline that God has provided for fathers to follow. Amen. Uh, as I said, we're breaking into chapter two today, uh, and, and I'll just tell you now, it's, it's not super obvious how to split this chapter up, but there, there is a scene change at verse 14, and, and it gives us an opportunity to cut this chapter into uh, two parts and, and really take the time uh, to squeeze a lot of the goodness out of it. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Before we do that, just in case somebody's jumping in now, hasn't been with us the last couple of weeks, I just want to catch you up. It won't take long. So in chapter one of Ruth, we're introduced to Elimelech and his family. He and his wife Naomi take their sons Malon and Kilion, and they leave Bethlehem. They leave the land of God, and they head to Moab because there's a famine. So they're looking for relief from the famine, okay? They go to Moab. Uh, their sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then not too long after that, uh, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, so all the men of the family, die, which is a big bummer. And so there's some discussion about what to do, and eventually what we see is that Naomi and Ruth, Orpah decides to stay in Moab, but Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. And so if you want to get more details on that, kind of hear the, the fill-in around all of that, you'll want to check out the last two weeks uh, of the series. But today, where we find ourselves is, is kind of them arriving in Bethlehem after all that I just described to you, okay? So that's where we're at. I'm going to read you the first 13 verses of chapter 2 in Ruth. Ready? Let's go. 
Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, and after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Praise God for his word. Amen. So now, Naomi and Ruth, they're in Bethlehem and they must begin the task of surviving as two widows, one of which is from Moab, which complicates things further. Moab, actually, the people of Moab, were believed by the people of Israel to be descendants of Sodom, okay? And so they were bitter enemies with the people of Israel. Now, I want to take a moment and, and set the stage for us a little bit because there's some really important historical and cultural context that is essential for us to be able to follow what is happening here, okay? So <clears throat> this is going to take just a minute. Well, maybe a little bit longer than a minute, but that's why I'm warning you, okay? It's real important, so don't, don't lose focus on me, Okay? This is going to help us really be able to get what's happening. So I think many of us understand that for a lot of folks, it's an unpopular idea today, but God's design for families was that husbands and fathers would take the role of protectors and providers. Okay? That's from the beginning. Now, if we look to Jesus as the ultimate example, and and I would say Boaz is also a pretty good example, and you'll see that more and more as we work through the book. But if we take Jesus as the ultimate example of servant leadership, to understand what God has in mind for how men are supposed to lead, it should remove any assumptions about domineering male chauvinism being the biblical model. Okay, Jesus was not a domineering male chauvinist, and Boaz doesn't seem to be either. Okay? I said this a little bit in a week past, but I I want us to, it's important as we read this to be able to connect with this idea. I think our cultural conversation around these ideas would look a lot different if we were all transported back to live in a time period where there was constant threat of war with swords, okay, 
That's, that's different than how we live today. And the mere task of basic survival was much more difficult. I would say, thankfully, biblical morality has shaped now a lot of what modern Western society and its laws look like. And, and so we don't live on the edge of invasion by neighboring tribes or starvation from a bad agricultural season. So things are different now. And I think that affects, to some degree, our ability to read this and, and relate to it. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're doing a great job as a society today, living by biblical codes of morality. But the point I'm getting at is most of you right now are not in danger of being attacked by a neighboring tribe at the moment. Okay. Now, that's kind of funny, but let's also remember this isn't true everywhere in the world even today. So we should remember that. Okay. My point in all of that is to explain what we're reading here today. In Israel, in this time, land was divided up by families. Okay? And the land would be passed from father to son as an inheritance. And this is how families were sustained through the generations. Now, some people, families, leaders of families, would make bad decisions. Uh, they would lose their land or they'd have to sell it or mortgage it. But every 50 years was the year of Jubilee. And that's where all debts were forgiven, land was returned to the original family, and a new generation got a shot at stewarding it well. This was a system that God put in place. This was given to the people of Israel by the Lord. And, and we're going to see in chapter 4 that Naomi could still sell their family land. Okay, But with that came the requirement, and this is going to sound strange to your modern ears, but give me a second. <clears throat> She could sell her land, but with that came the requirement of marrying her. Okay, why? Well, if we understand the problem Naomi was in, we'll understand why. The problem is Naomi at this point is too old to have another son. Okay, and so if she marries somebody and is not able to have a son, then the family ends up in the same position just a little bit down the road. The land would be lost. The family name would be lost. Okay, and we covered this in chapter one. Built into the law was this provision that starting with the closest male relative, okay, they could, this is, this is why Naomi was talking about saying all that weird stuff about you guys should stay in Moab because I can't give you other sons to marry, right? It's like, whoa, <laughs> you all right, Naomi? Right, but th it's because of all of this background that we have to understand so that it makes sense, okay? The closest male relative, oftentimes it'd be a brother. If there wasn't a brother available, then it would move on from there could marry the widow and hopefully have sons through her who would then carry on the name. So basically, it would be as if that son was the son of the deceased father, okay? And, and this is why we see the author is really careful to tell us several times in the first few verses here that Boaz is a kinsman of Naomi, okay? Of the family of Elimelech. You with me? Okay, I know for some of you that hurt, but <clears throat> I'm not quite done yet. Now, it's possible, it, it, I, would, I would say even likely, but I'll, I'll stay with possible as my official statement, that during their time, because the Bible doesn't say this, but knowing, the, knowing what was going on in Israel in this time, it seems fairly likely to me, it's possible that during their time in Moab, when Elimelech and Naomi and Malon and Kilion, they left, they were gone for at least 10 years, a little bit more, that during that time in Moab, that bad actors would have started working their land, okay? Because right, if... 
if it's like, oh, that's a Limelex land, there's the marker stones for it, and you've got the fields all around it, and you notice year one, nobody farms it, year two, nobody, nobody farms it, then, you know, maybe year three, you're casting your seed to sow for your barley, and you're like, oh, whoops, you know, take, take 20 feet of their land, and then on and on, right? And so it, it's real possible that that was the case. And, and, and if, if it was, then Naomi was in no position to fight them off, okay? And, and even if that wasn't the case, even if their marker boundaries were intact and no one had encroached on that. She didn't have the resources to start farming it herself, so it wasn't much good to her anyways. This is part of why I'm trying to explain to you why the Bible gives us this idea that Ruth and Naomi were in such a tough spot, okay? And, and, and that, okay, you might be like, whoo, did we need all that? Yes, because I need you to understand why Ruth was going out to glean, Okay, all of that will help you to understand why we see her saying to Naomi, let me go out and glean, okay? Uh, And and I want to explain that to you as quickly as possible, okay? And and like I said, I know some of you might be tempted to glaze over because I'm going over ancient Israel's laws and customs, but but the story won't make much sense if if we don't have this basic understanding. So, and and hopefully also it's doing this. I, I, I anticipate a potential barrier here and I'm hoping this taking the time to kind of lay out the land a little bit here and understand what will help you to not be sitting there thinking, well, why didn't Naomi and Ruth just roll into town and, and, and start a feminist uprising and burn the patriarchy? Right? And, and here's what I'm trying to get across to you. This was a different time, folks. It was a different time. It's clear from the text that it wasn't even safe for Ruth to be out in the fields alone. That's why Boaz says to her, don't go to any other fields. Stay with my workers. I've told them to watch out for you. Okay? And you're like, well, still, I don't like that. Well, I don't think God liked it either. But here's the reality. There wasn't security cameras everywhere. And there wasn't always lots of people around. Okay? So if Ruth and Naomi would have, you know, jumped on their donkeys and blasted Beyonce, headed out to the family land, ready to challenge whoever was out there, they very likely would have gotten murdered and buried out in the boonies and no one would have known the difference. Ever. Okay? This was, Israel was a rough place at this time. This is the time of the judges. The book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges, which is, you know, one of the key kind of descriptors of the time of the judges is everyone did what was right in their own. Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not good, right? (laughs) That sounds like today. I agree, but we don't have time to talk about that right now. (laughs) We'll work on that in a minute. Okay. So gleaning. Why Why did Ruth go to glean? Gleaning was a provision in the law. God put in there, okay? You can read it in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. I'm going to read it to you now. This is, this is the law of God. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. For the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so this, the idea was, those who had land and had the resources, they couldn't, they couldn't harvest all the way out to the edges of their field. If something fell to the ground, they were supposed to leave it because there was this understanding that we have foreigners passing through that have no resources. And so we, and we've got people in Israel whose families have lost their land or whatever. There are poor and needy people. This 
was a provision for them. They could go and they could glean those things and it wouldn't be considered stealing. It was something that God commanded his people to do. This was a God-ordained social welfare program. But it was different than a lot of what we do today. It, it, it had the effect of keeping in check the potential greed of those who had the resources, right? God said plainly, you're my people, and this is what I'm telling you to do with your fields that I've provided, okay? Don't take all the stuff out. If something falls on the ground, you leave it for the, the needy. Don't go all the way out to the edges and maximize every little red penny you can out of your field. Leave some for those who need it, okay? But also, this program that God instituted, it protected the dignity of the poor as they still had to do the work to go out and provide for themselves. God didn't say, have your workers pick it all and then go drop 10% off to the poor people. The folks that were needy could come out and could pick it up and gather it. This is what we see Ruth going to do, to glean in the fields. Okay? So now that we kind of have our bearings on the situation, I want to show you how this set of 13 verses... Uh, gives us a window into God's view of wandering, work, and wealth. And this will be one of the three times in a year that I've alliterated my sermon, so that's for all my former Baptist friends. Pastor Andrew, I don't know where you're at, but buddy, this one's for you, okay? Wandering, God's view, <laughs> God's view of wandering, work, and wealth, okay? First of all, wandering. So verse 3 says, She happened to end up in the field of Boaz. You could get the idea from, you could, I mean, people read stuff and get lots of ideas. You could get the idea she was just kind of meandering about and ended up there. That's not really the point. Really what it's, what it's doing there, it, it could sound like a coincidence, but this is almost, I, I say almost just because somebody might debate it, but I, I think it's pretty clear. This is a tongue-in-cheek reference to the intentionality and the sovereignty of God and how... The intentionality and the sovereignty of God, how it intersects with our lives when we live and we move with purpose. She happened to end up in the field of Boaz, the kinsman. Right? It's kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod. Happened to. All right? Now, how many of you have heard this phrase? Not all who wander are lost. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Okay, it's pretty, pretty famous. Okay. Does anybody know where that is most famously quoted from? If you know it, yell it out. I'm, I'm so terrible. What was it? That's right. Yes, sir. You get 5,000 points. Amen. And another 5,000 just for yelling out in the middle of a sermon and not being terrified. You have 10,000 points. They don't count for anything. You can't get anything with them, but you have them. Amen. There's free mints in the living room, man. You help yourself to as many as you want. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, so yeah. Now, um, I think Shakespeare before uh, Tolkien, so he said the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings series, okay? That's where this phrase is most commonly known from. I think Shakespeare said something close to it before, so you know, somebody may have thought that. But I'm, I'm, I think that I, I would say easily the most famous place this is pulled from or where people have heard it is from uh, the Lord of the Rings, okay? So... And that's by J.R.R. Tolkien, okay? Uh, now, more specifically, this phrase, not all who wander are lost, it's from a poem that Bilbo Baggins wrote about Aragorn, the true king of Gondor, when he was first introduced uh, as kind of a, as a ranger, which is kind of a, 
a, a drifting, wild, fighting guy, okay? Now, if right at this moment, you're leaning over and whispering to the person next to you, I didn't know Pastor Vince was this big of a nerd. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> okay? Uh, here's, here's what some of you may not know. Lots of you probably do. But Tolkien was actually good friends with C.S. Lewis. And, and there are biblical themes running throughout The Lord of the Rings. Okay? There are a little... There are a little, um, you think a little harder about it in The Lord of the Rings than it's not quite so out front in your face as in um, Lewis's books. But, and just, just so you know, uh, we scheduled this a while back. Uh, after the service today, we're going to have a big nerd gang fight in the parking lot between Chronicles of Narnia fans and Lord of the Rings fans. And we're just going to decide once and for all which one is best. So pick your side and I'll see you out there, okay? Uh, <laughs> amen. We're not going to do that. We already know the Lord of the Rings fans would stomp you Chronicles of Narnia people. We'd leave you in a puddle of your own blood. Amen. All right. Anyways, now, what, so here's, here's the question I want you to think about, okay? What do you think that phrase means? Not all who wander are lost. Not all who wander are lost. Um, I think for many people now, today, the way it's used most commonly that I've seen it, it, what it seems to be is, or, or what it, people think it does, is bolster the romantic notions many tend to have about kind of freeing yourself from the restraints of responsibility and just roaming carefree through the world. Right? Is that, it's kind of like the idea of wanderlust. You know, I just want to meander about and look around and not be weighed down with the, the responsibilities of life. Um, not all who wander are lost. It's like, you know, wandering, maybe, maybe that's a good thing, right? Well, I'd say part of the point is not all who wander are lost, but not in the way you would think, okay? Um, as I said, that phrase is actually, it's a line of a poem, and that poem is called, All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter. Now, hold on a second, because when I hear that, I, I had to really look at it, because I've heard the phrase, all that glitters is not gold, many times, this is actually a reversal of that, so you're going to have to think about it a second. All that is gold does not glitter. Okay, that's the name of the poem. And, and, and I want to read you the words around that very famous phrase of not all who wander are lost and see if it can help us kind of see what the original intent of that was, okay? Here's what it says. These, this is just the, the words right around that phrase. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem quite as appropriate after reading what's around it for that phrase that we're talking about, not all who wander are lost, for that phrase to be a patch, right, that's kind of like sewn on the backpack of someone who hitchhikes around the country and hits up music festivals professionally, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea that you end up getting with that phrase. It's, it's kind of what it's become, people think it means. I don't, it's pretty clear the idea here is, is not romanticizing some kind of hakuna matata, you know, no worries for the rest of your days type attitude, right? What's that? That's from The Lion King, okay? If your knowledge of Disney movies is that poor, I need you to fix it, right? 
right? It's, it's Timon and Pumbaa, Hakuna Matata, no worries. I mean, how does that, and it seems to work for a while. Simba's out there eating bugs, having a great time. But eventually, the need to step up to his responsibility becomes apparent. And all of this kind of is weaving into the idea of, of how we see purpose and how we conceptualize the idea of, of wandering and work and, and what that all means, right? So <clears throat> coming back to the text, Ruth didn't leave Moab and come to Bethlehem with Naomi for some grand adventure or because she was bored with the scenery back home. She came with a purpose to serve and care for her mother-in-law. She was under no delusion that this was going to be a forever vacation or some kind of perpetual leisure and that God would just provide for their needs while they relaxed and and took long walks in the woods each day. Ruth understood that our God is our provider, but part of how he has provided for us is by giving us the ability to work. And this is why we see her get up and head towards the fields to glean. And we also see that the Lord meets her. As she's taking that step, he meets her and blesses her through that purpose-filled movement. I think many of us, we have this frame of mind where it's like, well, what Ruth should have done is sit in the house with Naomi and have a prayer meeting until God told her specifically what field to go to. And I'm not saying that's always the wrong answer. Maybe sometimes that's appropriate, But man, you can really be paralyzed in your life if you think that's how everything's supposed to go. Ruth got up and said, I'm going to go find a field to glean in because we need to eat. And I'm the one young enough to go do it. I'm going to work. No amens on that? What's up? You, You guys okay? Jeez, all right. So that leads us, I don't, the idea we kind of have of, of, of wandering and the ideal being uh, just, you know, this idea of, of carefree, responsibility-free, restraint-free. Um, I, I don't, <clears throat> I'm going to make the case for you that that's really not even what we were made for. So how does God view work and how should we? That's a kind of a basic principle, but I hope you catch it. How does God view work? Because that's how we should view work, right? We need, to, we need to have a robust biblical theology of work. Because part of what that does is helps to tear down the the sacred-secular divide that often exists in our minds. A lot of times we think like, well, what we do on Sundays, or if we get together during the week in community groups, or we do outreach, those are our spiritual activities. And then the rest of our week is our kind of secular, vocational. Look, man, from, from a biblical perspective, there is no divide between those things. All of your life is spiritual. If you belong to Jesus, all of you belongs to him. Every hour of your day belongs to him. Every breath you inhale and exhale belongs to him. He is interested in how you work and how you think about work and why you work, okay? Now, I want to, for a second here, to avoid distraction from the principles I'm about to lay out, and because you guys were so silent when you should have said amen earlier, I want to preface everything else I'm about to say by saying this, okay? There are many different ways we can fulfill the God-ordained mandate to participate in purpose filled work as humans. There's many different ways to fulfill that mandate. This looks different across time and cultures, okay? It includes the very real work that must be done in the home. Amen? So by that, what I want you to understand is, I I mean, you don't have to be an agricultural worker or work outside 
to do or think about what we're talking about properly. Okay? I'm not saying everybody quit your job at the insurance company and go start picking strawberries, okay, in order to have a proper theology of work. No. Okay? That's just the work that was available in this place in this time. Also, I want to say this. There are, of course, those like Naomi, for example, who either because of age or disability are not able to work in a more straightforward sense. Okay? Of course that's true. But we are focusing here not on the practical exceptions, but on our mindsets and our belief about human purpose and flourishing as it pertains to work. Okay? Everyone with me on that? All right. Three of you are. Good. Hopefully the rest of you jump on the wagon here in a minute. Okay? Let me, let me maybe, I'll give you an example of one thing that comes to mind. Maybe that'll help. Okay? Uh, my wife, Natalie's grandma, is in her 80s. Okay? Her name is Jean. She's a sweetheart. Uh, Bamo, if you're watching, what's up? Um, so she struggles with arth- arthritis, and she can't get around like she used to. Uh, but she, she loves our church, and um, she wanted to do something to help us with our weekly outreaches to those experiencing homelessness, okay? So Bamaw can't go out and run around the streets with us, feeding people and praying for them and doing all the stuff we do out there, okay? She just can't do it physically anymore. So... Bama, what's that? That's what the grandkids started calling her, and it's stuck. So everyone calls her Bama now, in case you're confused. You know, in the Midwest, we got like eighteen thousand names for grandparents. So she drew the short straw on Bama. I don't know. I think she likes it, so it doesn't matter. Uh, so what does she? So what does she do? She wants to help. She wants to contribute. She knits hats for us to give out in the wintertime. and I don't mean a few hats. I mean dozens and dozens and dozens of hats, a lot of hats, okay? And I I just want to say to you, I I, I literally can't tell you how many times people have stopped in their tracks and they've made eye contact with me and said, wow, really? When I've told them, yeah, my grandma handmade that hat. It means something to them. There's one guy down there, I swear to you, I think he's told everyone in Cincinnati, that guy's grandma made this hat. Got like a feather clip to it and stuff. I mean, it's awesome. (laughs) It really meant something to him, man. Guy's 6'4", looks like he could just dunk you on your forehead if you said something bad to him, man. But it tears in his eyes over the hat Bamo made. Okay? And and, and the other thing you need to know, there's there's a financial component to that as well. Because Bamo buys all the yarn. Now, trust and believe, Bamo watches the sales and uses coupons, and she gets the yarn when it's on sale. And I just want to praise God that that thrifty uh, skill was passed down. I don't know if it was genetic or learned behavior to my wife, okay? Hallelujah. Amen. One of my favorite things about Natalie, man, she'll be school shopping for the kids. She'll roll in with two giant bags. She's like, look at all this stuff. I got 14 school outfits for 53 cents. Like, and I, I never see her more excited than that. And I'm like, babe, you the truth. <laughs> yeah, but here's what I'm saying. Uh, Bama worked really hard her whole life. She's on fixed income, don't have a lot of money, but, but she not only works hard in, in her chair where she can, making those hats, but, but because of the work she's done over her life, she's got a little bit of money left over to, to buy the yarn and the supplies that it takes to do that. That's, that's part of what I'm talking about here. 
What, how do we think about work? Because it'd be easy for her to think, look, I've worked hard my whole life. I've earned the right to sit here and watch prices right every day and do nothing. <clears throat> Amen. I, I think many of us, getting back to kind of the idea of a theology of work, because the curse laid out in Genesis 3, right? God makes everything one and two. Genesis 3, we do the one thing he told us not to do, right? And then he lays out this, this curse, the consequences of what's going to happen. I think because that curse in Genesis 3, it mentions toiling by the sweat of our brow, we are tempted to believe we only have to work because the world is broken by sin. I think a lot of times our theology of work is messed up. We think, we think work is only in the world because we messed it up with sin. But the picture we have in the beginning, in the garden, uh, the picture we have of God providing for Adam and Eve, it wasn't that three times a day he sent an angel down to you know, feed them as they laid underneath a tree slobbering like Jabba the Hutt. That was not how God provided. God put them in a garden that had all the things that they needed and said, care for this, cultivate it, care for the animals. Adam and Eve had a job before sin ever came on the scene. What does that say about God's good design and purpose for work and how that dovetails with human flourishing? Okay. I know some of you right now, like, <laughs> you know, you're living for that day that you can, you can retire and you're like, hold on, dude, you're, you're getting too close to my sacred cow here. And, and I mean, that's part of what I do every week. I come and I kick your sacred cows over, send you home frustrated to the glory of God. But part of what I'm trying to say to you, man, is work is not a result of sin. It's part of God's good design from the beginning. And, and, I, and it's about to get worse. I hate to break it to those of you who've imagined that in eternity with God, we're all going to be lounging around on clouds, wearing diapers, stringing harps, you know. <laughs> when God's people inhabit a renewed earth, I don't see any biblical reason to think we won't have purpose-filled work to do. It was a part of God's good design in the beginning. I don't see any reason why it won't be when all things are restored. Now, I realize I'm talking to probably two different groups of people here. Some of you, right now, you're like, sweet, because I was super worried about being bored in eternity, right? You're like, <laughs> whoo! And some of you are like, Gosh, man, stop. I was going to do sweet harp solos. So I got some of you just stoked on this. Some of you brokenhearted right now. Those of you that are stoked, love and support those that are brokenhearted after the service. Just give them a hug, man. We'll get, we'll get you through it. <laughs> oh, man. And I could see some of you saying, well, well hold on, hold on. I, I thought the Bible said that we were going to rest in eternity. You got me, didn't you? Yes, we are going to rest, but we're going to rest by God's definition, not ours. Okay? Perpetual leisure is not what we were made for, and it's not how we will flourish best. Eternal rest doesn't mean no work. It means we are free from the striving and toiling that sin has brought into the earth. We will be free from working with wrong motives, like worshiping money or worldly success. We won't work to survive, but for the glory of God and the good of one another as he originally intended. 
This is why when Jesus tells the weary to come to him and he will give them rest, he doesn't say, hey, come to me. I'm going to put you next to a pool with a drink that has a little umbrella in it. He offers us a yoke. Let me read that to you. I know some of you are like, eggs? No. I'll explain. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. We like that part. Yeah. Resting sounds good. The very next thing he says is, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Okay? A yoke is a farm implement for connecting animals to plows and wagons to do work. When Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest, he says, come put my yoke on. That's where you're going to find the rest you really need for your soul. The beauty of Christ's offer here is that we get to work with him the way we were made to. We get to work with him the way we were made to. Part of the beauty of that is if he's next to us in the yoke, he's strong enough to handle it when we can't. We start to stumble or trip, he'll just move us right along. Amen. But we get to work with him. I hope that's exciting to you. I hope you care about that. The gleaning that Ruth was doing here would have been very labor intensive. It would have been repetitive. And it could have been very easy for her to lose sight of the purpose for which she was doing it. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to do agricultural field work, but it's tough. And I don't mean going to the strawberry farm for an hour and picking you a bucket of strawberries for your, for your strawberry shortcake, okay? Uh, I'm talking about all day long being out there. One of the first jobs I had, I lived in Illinois. I, I can't remember. I don't even know how it wasn't illegal. I think 12 or 13, because of farm rules, you could go out and detassel corn. Who knows what detasseling corn is? Probably one person in here. Okay, yeah, two, three. My wife, because I've told her. Uh, there's... There's a part on the top of the corn that, that has to be pulled off or else it'll cross-pollinate in ways that the farmers don't want it to. And so a machine goes through and does a bunch of it, but then they send human people through and all day long you're pulling these things off the top of, of corn stalks. You're wet, all cut up. I mean, that's the summers I did that, man, I would dream of corn at night. It's a bummer. It's tough work. Um, but what I'm getting at is this, this work that Ruth was doing would have been very hard, very repetitive, and it had been easy to lose sight of why she was doing it. The first line of that poem that we were talking about, it, I think it speaks to this as well. And I, I pointed out for you to pay real close attention. It says, all that is gold does not glitter. All that is gold does not glitter. It can be really easy for us to become discouraged with the seemingly menial or repetitive tasks of work, both outside the home and, and inside the home. Oftentimes, it's the same things day in and day out. And, and if we aren't disciplined in remembering the purposes behind these things, we can become exasperated by them, which invariably leads to disillusionment and ingratitude. And, and then finally, oftentimes, fantasizing about being free from all of those responsibilities. Amen. Now, for those who belong to Jesus, we have this help. Our identity is not wrapped up in our job or our duties. It's, it's easier to understand being discouraged if 
Who you are, the, the way you understand yourself is defined by what you do. I could see how that would, that could become very discouraging very quickly, but I, I just want to say, praise be unto God, that we are his children first and foremost. So that's who we are. We are his children first and foremost. And so what we do flows out of that. And, and how we spend the time and energy he's given us should be determined by who we are. And that would help us stay reminded of the purposes behind the work that we do, no matter how seemingly menial, repetitive, or bummerish it is. Amen. I think this also provides another side of the coin uh, for us to look at as well, because sometimes we may be exasperated by what we're doing, because what we're doing, and, and we're doing things that don't have any eternal meaning or contribute to our purpose and identity as followers of Jesus, right? I think that's another thing we have to watch out for. Let me, let me make that a little bit simpler. I, I'm sure there's some people in the room right now who have a, your, your sinful tendency is not towards laziness and wanting to just wander in the woods all day and have no responsibilities. Your sinful tendency is towards being a workaholic. Okay? You guys ever heard of that before? Somebody in here, maybe that's your closer tendency than just being lazy? Yeah, right? And so... The problem up to this point in this sermon is all of you that have a sinful tendency towards being a workaholic, you're, you're sitting there like, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. This is awesome. Lazy people are the worst. Yes, get them. Okay? But we need to balance this on the other side for your sinful tendency, workaholics, who see everyone who can't work as hard as you as lazy a lot of times when you're that intense about it, it's because your identity is too heavily wrapped up in what you do. And I, and I hope it doesn't take something where something happens to you where you can't work in order for you to figure that out. I hope you'll listen to the wisdom of the word of God right now and ask Jesus for help in your heart about it. You see a lot of people that that's true for them and then some accident happens, some sickness happens and they can't work and, and who they were, who they saw themselves as was wrapped up totally in their occupation or what they do and you, they are crushed. Sometimes they don't, they don't get back up. If we are working primarily to try to find our identity or attain some measure of what the world would call success, or to hoard up worldly possessions, or imagine ourselves having no need of God's help, right? Proverbs says that, the, the wealthy man, the rich man imagines his wealth an unscalable wall. That's a big problem. If we're doing it for those reasons, then our work will slowly hollow us out from the inside, and great will be the fall when we realize the emptiness of those pursuits. And if, if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to check out Ecclesiastes written by one of the richest guys to ever walk the face of the planet, Solomon. Who Look, Solomon, Solomon's servants had servants, type money, okay? Like, rich, rich. And he has a lot to say about the futility of the pursuit of riches. So I'll just commend that to you. Amen. So what is that, where does that lead us? When you flip that coin over, what a lot of people end up thinking, well, what, what is the remedy? What do we do? Is, is the way you stay out of that trap to just, just stay poor, that's how you avoid that being what gets you? And I think 
that idea, it leads us to the last point. So we talked about God's view on wandering, God's view on work, and the last is God's view on wealth. So <clears throat> there's, and, and some of you, as I begin to unpack this, you're going to recognize you've heard me say something like this before. And, and I, I just want to say, yes, I know I've said this. And, and you'll notice I will repeat important things on purpose. <laughs> I will say it oftentimes, especially if the text kind of just shoves us there for sure. Uh, but there, one, of the, one of the primary fault lines in our current cultural context, the, the, the things people are dividing over is, is around this idea of, of how we view wealth, how we view socioeconomic status and what it means. And, and how you look at that will have a lot to do with probably what your current socioeconomic status is. What does that mean? How much wealth do you have right now? And, and, and the other thing that we should say, just as a caveat, and I always do, and, and I just want you to always think about this, in historical um, and, and global, by, by historical and global standards, the fact that we're all sitting here in an air-conditioned room means we're probably on the richer end of the spectrum, right? If you look at people throughout history and all over the globe and you run an average, most of us would probably be in the upper spectrum in terms of wealth, okay? So I just want you to remember that no matter how poor you may feel, just by way of where God has placed you, when he's placed you, you're probably more wealthy than you feel, but I'll digress on that. Here's, here's, here's the setup. Here's what often happens when, when we're thinking about wealth and what that means. There's, there's often this dichotomy that happens where um, people that see themselves as having less resources, they, they look at those that have more resources and there's this assumption that the way they got those more resources was through wickedness, through pushing other people down. The only way you could have got up there on the economic ladder is by being wicked, by stomping on the heads of other people to get there. There can be that assumption. And then there's people that are on that, on that higher end of the socioeconomic ladder, they'll look at those that are, have less resources, and there, there can be this negative assumption that, well, if you're in that spot, it's because you're lazy or you're stupid. Well, I, I would never think that. Well, that's, that's great. I'm glad you don't. I hope you don't, because that's really ignorant. And it lacks the nuance that the scriptures see around the issue. And I'm going to show that to you. It's staring us in the face right here. But it's not... First of all, we need to make sure we submit ourselves humbly before the Lord to make sure some of those biases aren't creeping around somewhere down deep in our hearts. Amen. Also... It's not enough for you just to say, oh, well, I don't think like that. We need to have a biblical understanding of these things so that we can speak into it because Satan and everybody that works for him wants to keep people at each other's throats with these false lines of division. The forces of darkness want to keep people from coming together in unity for God's purposes at any cost. And this is one of the ways, even within the body of Christ, sadly, people end up divided. Amen. What do we see here? The, the, the scriptures are careful to tell us right off the rip that Boaz was Naomi's kinsman, yes, but that he was a man of great wealth. A man of great wealth. So what, what we've seen from Boaz so far and what we're going to see moving forward, it should, it should shake up, it should decimate, actually, that idea that if you have a bunch of of material resources, you had to be wicked to get there. 
We don't see that from Boaz. We see Boaz, I told you about the law, about gleaning and all that. Boaz, and we haven't even got the second half of chapter two, we'll see it even more. Not only does he say you can glean, right? But you can also drink from the water jars from, from the, the, that my people have pulled up. He's going to go farther. He's going to feed her. He's going he's to make sure she's protected. He's going to tell his people, look, don't, don't even make her do it the traditional way. Drop some stuff out of your bucket and don't say anything to her about it. He goes far above and beyond even what God's law required in terms of generosity to the poor. This is Boaz, the man of great wealth. So if you're somebody that's been tempted to think all rich people are evil, you're wrong. I don't like that. I don't care. <laughs> you you got you to get that right, man, because it's not true. Let's go to the other side. Are, are all people that are, are, are currently in a place where they are lacking worldly resources, are, are they lazy or are they stupid? Ruth was so poor that she was out in the fields hoping to pick up the scraps of grain left behind by harvesters so her and Naomi could survive. That's how poor she was. But is the Bible painting her as someone that's, that's lazy and the reason she's in that place is because she isn't willing to work or isn't smart enough to know how to go work? No. The Bible's way smarter than we are. It sees the complexity of the human condition. And the Bible doesn't divide people into good and bad by rich and poor. It doesn't do that. We shouldn't do it either. The Bible looks in terms of righteousness. And here's the truth. There can be righteous rich people and there can be wicked rich people. There can be righteous poor people and there can be wicked poor people. We need more categories and we need to make sure we put a knife to the throat of our biases and keep putting them to death. Because it'll lead us into wrong thinking. It'll lead us into treating people unfairly. Thinking of them unfairly and it'll lead to division which is not what God's desire is for us. Amen. This whole, this whole thing, we, this whole dynamic we see in Ruth 2, it breaks down biased assumptions of righteousness based on socioeconomic status. We can't buy into this foolishness. Uh, there are some people that are rich because they're wicked and they've exploited others, but some are rich because God knows he can trust them with resources. Like Boaz. <laughs> okay. Some people are poor because they're lazy and they made poor decisions, yes. But some people are poor because God's doing something specific with them for their good and his glory, like Ruth. If Ruth had never been reduced to the station where she had to go glean in the field, she would have never met Boaz. If she never met Boaz, I got to stop right there or I'm going to preach the whole book. You almost got me. No, 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 no. But you're going to see that God was doing something in all of this intentionality, sovereignty of God intersecting with our purpose-filled movement. Okay? Amen. Wealth is not a reliable indicator of where anybody stands with the Lord. Right standing with God is by faith and faith alone. The gospel frees us from categorizing people in, in, in reductionistic or biased ways. We don't believe Wealthy people and poor people are bad or good based on how much money they do or don't have. Okay, Because we don't even really think in terms, as, as gospel-minded Jesus followers, we don't even really think in terms of good and bad people. right? Because Romans is pretty clear in chapter 3. Apart from Christ, we're all bad people. Everyone, everyone pull out your wallet and your purse. Show me how much money you have. I'm going to go bad person, bad person, bad person, bad person, bad person, apart from Christ. The only way you're getting good, the only way you're going to have any righteousness is by trusting Christ 
and, and leaning on his by faith, by accepting the free gift of salvation that comes in trusting what God has said, which is, you are not perfect and I am. That creates separation between you and me. I loved you so much, I've done everything necessary to bridge that gap. Christ paid the price each one of us should have. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The only chance any of us have of being counted as righteous isn't getting more or less money in your wallet. It's understanding our need for God and humbling ourselves before him and receiving the free gift that only he can offer. The gospel is what leads us there. And it's what helps us to think our way through these complex issues. And I'm so thankful for the example we see here in Ruth and Boaz. Praise God for his gospel and the hope it provides for us today. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this time in your word. Thank you uh, for all of the corrective measures <laughs> that we see here. Thank you for all of the truth that comes and, and perhaps assaults our, our preconceived notions. Lord, help us to be humble about that. Help us to fully expect a God whose ways are higher and thoughts are better than ours, who exists outside of time, who's infinite, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who has made all things. Lord, may we be humble enough to fully expect that your truth is going to conflict with our perceptions. And God, when we, when we run into those places, help us to bend your way. Help us to be humble enough to understand that if you think this way about wandering or, or, or about work, uh, Lord, that, that that's the right way to think about it. If you think a certain way about it, that's the way I want to think about it. And God, we submit ourselves to the process. We know it's a process. We submit ourselves to that work you're doing in us of continuing to conform our thoughts and, and our opinions uh, to yours, Lord. I ask you to just continue finishing that work you began in us and, and weaving our will and our perceptions uh, with yours. We want to think like you. And we want to speak like you. And we want to treat people like you do. Help us with all of these things, Lord God, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.